This episode of Today, Maybe Forever is presented in collaboration with the Atlanta Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. I'm Floyd Hall, and this is Today, Maybe Forever. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with curator, archivist, artist, uh, intellectual, Pelham McDaniels. How are you, sir? I'm doing well. Thank you, Floyd. I'm glad to have some time with you today, Pelham. And I wanted to ask you, I want to go back to maybe your, your early artist days. Yes. What is your first and favorite piece of work that you created from just of, of yourself as an artist, as a young man? Oh, my gosh. Uh, the very first art show I had was in 1995 in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, ethnic art it was a gallery. Ron and Dorothy Cheney were the, were the owners and curators. But my favorite piece was a piano. And it was a piano that I painted. It was a watercolor. And it was just, it was the, the keys. And, um, and the keys were reflective. And it was, it was called Blue Piano. But it was, it was, it was like my, my the favorite piece. And you know, artists, you have to negotiate with the gallery owners and your curators because you know they're they're going to get everything framed. So Dorothy asked me. She goes, "Okay, so this is this is the um, this is the bill. So we're going to do you know this is the split we're going to do, and it'll it'll cover our costs." And you know, um, and so by the end of the show, she was like, "Well, this is what I'm going to do." And I was like, "I had like I sold like six pieces. It was it was amazing. It was my first show, and I sold six pieces." And the one piece I wanted to keep for myself was a piano. And she says, no, I'm keeping that one. Your bill is clear. <laughs> so my favorite piece she kept, you know, and that covered everything because, the, you know, again, the six pieces sold. And I just, you know, that is, to, my, to this day, I have like, I, we actually had note cards made. And so I have that little blue piano in a frame, you know, what's left, you know, that's the last thing, my memory of it. But yeah, blue piano. We are here, if you can't tell by the background, we are, we are here uh, at Gallery 72 uh, in the open air space of this gallery as people are kind of filing in and out. Um, but we're talking about the current exhibition on display, which is entitled Rusty Miller, The Compassionate Eye in Forgotten Atlanta. Thank you for spending some time with me in this moment. As I mentioned in the brief intro, you're an artist, you are a curator, you are an archivist, yeah. and, and you do all of this from your, your position at the Rose Library at Emory University. And it was important for me, to, for, for me to have you here because I wanted you to see these photos and give your perspective because I figured you would see some things in a right. different way than the rest of us. Right, well I appreciate that. Uh, but I, I am, I'm taken aback by these images for a number of reasons. And, and I'll give you a little bit more kind of background. So my work at the Rose Library as curator is specifically uh, in collecting, acquiring materials related to the African-American experience. And then we're broadening now to the African diasporic experience. Well, you know, there are a number of artists who are now expats, but there are artists coming to us who have had, you know, who've been in the United States for such a long time that they have also kind of been able to absorb this African-American experience. Um, artists like Donald Locke, who is Guyanese, or um, you know, we have the papers of, of uh, Nathaniel Mackey, who one of his uh, mentors was Wilson, um, Wilson Harris, uh, who was also Guyanese. So, so we're, we're opening up this idea about 
the African-American experiences to include Africa and the West Indies and, uh, and France, the Francophone Africans too. So the, the work is, is ongoing, it is, it's challenging, but it is so very um, fulfilling because I'm connecting with people. And by connecting with people and their stories, I'm able to share those stories of triumph, of, of resilience that really have become, that are still very important to our survival, uh, but also the way in which we can see into the future, you know, beyond even today's kind of political turmoil. So as you, as you, as you stand at that intersection of yes. the past and the present and the, the documentation of culture of life, right. um, how do you begin to approach new collections of work. Mm -hmm. So when, when, when you're looking at these new images here, new right. to you, yes. um, how do you place these images in, in a, a contextual space, right. given what you know and what you have studied already about Atlantans, black Atlantans right. in, this, yeah. in this place? Yeah, I think it's a good, really, really good question because part of, if I, if I, if I just kind of you know, look at this collection of photographs here and think about what we have in the Rose Library, we have, you know, Skurlock images, James Van Der Zee, uh, Carl Van Vechten. I can name all these wonderful photographers that we have uh, samplings of in our collections. And those are very refined photographs and, and refined in a way that they're studio, that there are props, there's a, a narrative that is trying to be um, kind of uh, presented, and there's a performance. And the images that I'm looking at here are. You know, they're not necessarily raw, but they are real in a way that the studio photography will never or can never be. Um, what I see in these images, I, I see these textures of everyday life. I see, you know, kind of um, the resilience of, of black people um, in a space that they made their own. Uh, I see the, the joy of children playing, um, you know, in this kind of this free space that you know, all they know is, is what is happening in that moment. And so this is a very important collection in terms of everyday life and all, you know, as, as, uh, as cosmopolitan as the setting is, you know, in the backdrop of some of the photographs, you see the city kind of growing uh, behind it. The, the reality of everyday life for African-Americans is very clear. It's in its, and it's eerie because this is something that still holds true to this day, that we still have that kind of facade of, of progress where others are, and those of us who are part of the community are still suffering. So, I mean, that juxtaposition in a number of these images is so very important. And in fact, some of these images can be mapped on to current spaces and places near downtown Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that, that jumps out to me about, about these, these images uh, is the time period. And so these images were taken late 60s, early 70s. And so if you imagine that period of time in American history, civil rights movement right. still is, is going on strong, this is the other side of that. And That's so right. you may have, you, in these images you may have uh, folks who may protest or may have been marching in certain moments or, right. or boycotting or, or being part of some movement-led um, activity, um, but at the other end of that spectrum, they go home to this, That's or right. this is yeah. just you know when they're when they're not visible in, in that way. Right, right. Well, you know, I find also interesting. I mean, that 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 story about the civil rights movement, about protests, 
those stories are, are made public through the media, whether it be television or magazines, Life Magazine, Ebony Magazine. And as you're saying this, you think about the reality that the same people who are marching have to go home to. So again, that idea of resilience is something that I think resonates, I mean, just in the textures of the wood and how things are created. The kids made like a go-kart with a crate and skates. Right. You can tell they tore the skates apart to make a go-kart. Um, a gentleman made a wheelbarrow out of you know, crates or, or, or um, you know, these different um, uh, platforms of just wood. Sure. Um, you see the porches that are just hanging on by a thread. I mean, but that's also a metaphor, you know, for people who make something out of nothing, who are just hang, barely hanging on. Mm -hmm. um, the fact that I saw in one of the images um, a woman who could have been my great-grandmother sitting in the kitchen, you know, everything in disarray, but her faith is on the wall. She has a picture of the Last Supper, you know. So, so these real-life you know, photographs or these photographs that represent the, the lives of, of people are so very important for us to understand within context. I can see I can see people coming through here and looking at this in a you know as a fetish in a way because they really don't understand the history. Whereas if you know the history, if you if you have memories that are similar, you see yourselves, right? You see you see an aunt, sure. you see a cousin, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think part of the, the beauty of this is when you come to something like this, an exhibit like this, and you have a similar history, you can see the beauty in, in what's in front of you, even though there is, you know, there is a reality too. I mean, this is poverty, this is abject poverty. Um, but for the children that we're looking at in these images, this is all they know. Sure. Um, in a very hyper-local context, these photos also highlight neighborhoods in Atlanta mm -hmm. um, that have been impacted and are still impacted by large-scale development. Right. So you get uh, the Summer Hill neighborhood, you get Buttermilk Bottoms. Um, in some of these photos, we see neighborhoods that were torn down to build Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Right. And the the local history of, of the impact of those large-scale developments is almost like common knowledge, right, but right. to see the bodies and the people yeah, in those places yeah. before that right. often kind of maybe shifts how we how we feel about right. what those what those commercialized enterprises do to a neighborhood. Right. I, and I think I, well, I, I agree, but I also think that we have to also be very cautious of kind of generalizing the we. Sure, you, you and I might be able to see this, but. There are people who will see these people that, that look like you and I in poverty and say, well, you know, these were rat traps and they need to be torn down. And, you know, they could have had, they, there was better housing being built. So sure, we sure. did a service to them. But the backstory is that when you, when you deny people a fair opportunity or chance to pursue this idea of the American dream, be well employed, have great access to education, um, live in a society that values their humanity and therefore treats them more humane, you wouldn't have this kind of abject poverty. But in fact, the reality of it is, is that this is in place for a purpose and a reason. What we see in these images is evidence of that. And so it's easy then to come and destroy this neighborhood because you've already decided that the people that live in these neighborhoods are not really worth you know, the effort to help them help themselves by, by being fair and just. So, you know, again, when I said fetish earlier, 
that, that I was intentional in that because there are still those in our society who who have um, a very morbid idea of what it means to be an American and who can and cannot pursue this idea of freedom, right? And so, you know, coming back to this idea of the stadiums being built in black neighborhoods, uh, the, the irony, as you know, I talked to you about this earlier, the irony is that in these black neighborhoods where they destroy and dismantle and send families adrift into the, you know, the four winds, uh, those same stadiums will at one point in the future employ children who've been in these impoverished neighborhoods uh, as the labor on the fields or at least the labor in the stadiums cleaning them after the games. Sure. Because again, tied to the idea of poverty and opportunity. Mm-hmm. I would like to get your perspective on on something that is always fascinating to me about your work, which is the archival process. Yes. These images were unearthed by family members. Right. And oh, that's beautiful. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I, I ask I ask you that or ask you about that process because a lot of what your work deals with is people having you know maintained certain things finding certain things, deciding what's valuable, what's not valuable, deciding something has some value, deciding on how to actually deliver that to someone like yourself. Talk about the archival process because I don't know if enough people understand how that works. So, I mean, at the university, it's it's very, you know, Randall Burkett did Emory a great favor. I think he also did Atlanta a great favor in terms of having a vision for building a stellar collection related to the African-American experience, the African diasporic experience in terms of arts and letters and black print culture and you think about activism. And I, and I say that in all sincerity because what he did was he worked with Dolores Aldrich, who was the first African-American uh, professor of sociology at Emory worked with Rudolph Byrd, who actually worked for the city of Atlanta in the same space in terms of the Arts Council, um, worked with Richard Long, Dr. Long, who's passed now, and a number of uh, African-American um, professors and community activists. Ingrid Saunders jones I think, is also a part of this conversation. And so what he did was he started collecting materials um, outside of Atlanta because Atlanta has Auburn Avenue Research Library, you have Morehouse, Spelman, and a number of universities that maintain their archives and therefore materials related to the experience of Atlantans, black Atlanteans, should be here in these different locations. What Randall did was establish the fact that every university across this country needs to have archives related to the black experience because it's part of American history. That was it, plain and simple. What we've been able to accomplish over the last 25 years is to build this collection related to the experience in representative ways that are in in media, in in terms of print media, digital media, um, our book collections, our photography collections, even our works on paper related to the artists and art historians. So that process has evolved over time. Now, how do we initiate this? Again, the momentum built from the initial collection has allowed us to attract donors who want to see their materials next to another particular collection. Mm. Alice Walker, prime example. You have Alice Walker's collection here because Rudolph Byrd was a founding member of the Alice Walker Society. He was a faculty at Emory. Beverly Guy, Beverly Guy Sheftal is also a member of that society. Mm. 
Um, and so the acquisition was made. Well, how many artists, writers in particular, who admire Alice Walker, who may have had Alice Walker as a mentor, they would want their collection to be with Alice Walker. Oh, of course. So those collections come to us as a gift. Gotcha. You know, Pearl Clegg, Valerie Boyd, you know, uh, Mari Evans, these are collections that came in the wake of the Alice Walker initial acquisition. Um, books on religion, uh, books related to uh, Carter Woodson, you know, his library, that acquisition came really as both a gift and as, a, as an opportunity. Here you have the father of Negro History Week, which becomes Black History Month. The uh, Association for the Study of African American Life and History is really wanting to put this collection in a space where not only will they will be, the materials will be preserved, but they will be used. And they will be really, and I use the word exploit in a positive way, but mm -hmm. the resource will be exploited to be able to pull researchers and community members into the space to see the books that Woodson used in his own research to publish and to make this history of African Americans known globally. So these are the things that we have done. Um, and, and then working with local folks, one of the things that I try to make sure that I do is to make sure that in terms of our local acquisitions, people from Atlanta or the surrounding area, is that they've contacted their local historical society, especially in terms of our African American collections. Um, have you contacted Auburn Avenue? Have you, you know, are these materials better suited at Georgia State? Or is this a Spelman acquisition? Because I think we want to maintain this, this, this um, partnership, but also a friendly discourse between institutions. Mm. It's okay, I think, if we have researchers come here and want to do research on civil rights to say, there's a great collection at the King Center, or you should go see, um, you know, uh, Derek over at the Auburn Avenue Research Library. Because I think that creates a healthy environment uh, of shared resources, but Atlanta becomes a destination. More specific collections like photography, I prefer we have samplings from different artists who are representing, who are, who are identifying and memorializing our history. Okay. Uh, from, again, mentioned Van Der Zee, we have a collection of James Hinton, who was a major photographer in the 60s, contemporary of Gordon Parks. Um, we have other uh, materials like our Langmuir collection, which is a vast collection of 12,000 images that range from, you know, 1840s daguerreotypes to early 20th century, you know, large format prints. Um, but that is from Philadelphia, you know, most of these images are from really the Northeast, and we have some materials, of course, from the South because he was collecting everywhere, and especially early, um, early 20th century and from the middle to the latter part of the 19th century, that's mostly going to be Southern because of the nature of our country and where black folks resided. Sure. Um, and so, you know, it, it, it's, it's a process that ebbs and flows, but you really depend upon the individual who has a need to place their papers or their materials as both uh, as a, a preservation concern, but also um, issues around legacy. And if it's a, a child whose parent made, you know, tremendous contributions, they're generally confused about where things should go. Should I sell it to, on eBay? Should I donate it to this local, you know, um, special collections? What should I do? And it comes back to, well, what do you want to have done with the materials? How do you want the legacy to live on? If you're just going to donate it to a place where you really don't know the history, anything can happen. They could sell it. Mm. Right? Uh, someone who 
um, you know, is a curator, may acquire it, but they may not be there in five years, and that could be deaccessioned, and who knows what would happen to it. So when we're having these conversations, it's important to get to know the people and get to know and find out what is it, what is it that they want. But I think when anyone approaches me or, or you know, my predecessor about African-American collections, they know exactly what they're going to get in terms of you know, the preservation portion of it, the access, anyone has access to, access, access to it. But then on top of it, we may use the, pro, the materials more frequently in our programming, our exhibitions, um, and attract fellows to use the materials in their own research and their publications. Now I would love to talk about you. Yeah. As, as an archivist, as a curator, as an artist, because I feel like whoever, anyone who, who's listening to us now, I think kind of gets where you're coming from right. and, and, and has a good frame of, of reference for, for your, 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 your place in this conversation. But I want to talk about how you got to this point. Yes. And I would love for you to maybe share your journey in terms of both uh, academically right. and career-wise, but also uh, very um, stringent areas of interest. Okay. Well, I, from the outset, I'll just I'll be off the cuff and say, you know, I love black people. I love I love my history. I think we don't celebrate our resilience enough. We don't talk about the fact that when it comes to our presence in this country, you know, we have nothing to be ashamed about in terms of you know the institution of slavery. Um, we were we were not the enslavers. So from that particular standpoint, my work has been to really uncover the, the, our history and, and, and those individuals you know, through biography who have made tremendous contributions who we don't know about and people that we can, we can affiliate with because of the history. Yeah. So my, my position, my purpose is to illuminate this history. So I'll begin with that. So my background, I'm uh, originally from, from San Jose, California, born and raised by my grandparents, um, and had tremendous opportunities to be connected with, you know, I have a large family from, you know, from Texas, and everyone migrated to Northern California in the 1930s, so our family was spread out around the Bay Area. But they always shared these stories, stories about picking cotton, Texas, things that I could never imagine even as an adult. Um, you know, the kind of uh, abuse that we read about that black folk experience in, as sharecroppers. You know, these were lived experiences by my family uh, that, that were shared freely. So I, I have those memories, but I also have the memories of the card parties and I have the memories of people talking about, you know, when they were kids, the things that they did, the knee high, you know, soda pop, uh, big red soda pop and sweet potato pie. And so I'm very rooted in, in, in black history from my own experiences. And, and the love of, of the culture. Um, I went on to undergraduate at undergrad, uh, Oregon State University where I, where, where I had a football scholarship and um, ended up pursuing a you know, degree in political science. Thought I wanted to be a lawyer, but then you know, I actually went off to undergraduate as a fine arts major, but the scholarship didn't pay for oil, oil paint or for canvas, so I had to change my major. Uh, because brother didn't have any money, you know. <laughs> and a scholarship only paid for certain portions of, yeah. of your academic uh, pursuits. So I ended up going into broadcasting because um, by the time I hit my senior year, I'd actually been um, designated as someone who probably would be drafted in the NFL. Didn't get drafted, 
worked um, for Procter & Gamble. I took that job uh, and then decided one day that, you know, I had a college degree, I had work experience, so I'm going to give the NFL a shot. And I ended up basically playing in the NFL for 10 years after that. You know, I worked my way through the World League and uh, finally landed in Kansas City, Missouri uh, and played there for seven years. But in that time period, I continued to pursue a master's of history at the university there, uh, developed a uh, foundation uh, called Arts for Smarts, which was a K through 12 program that exposed um, children in the urban core to the fine and applied arts. The reason being, I felt as a kid, the arts were, you know, represented a place or a space where I could be in conversation with myself um, you know, maybe the problem solving, maybe um, it was an opportunity to take that energy, you know, that childhood energy and, and really channel it through. You know, I had sports on one side, but I also had the intellectual pursuit another with the art. Sure. So I wanted to make sure that kids, especially in, in Kansas City's core, had access to art supplies, experiences, whether they be going to, to uh, museums or concerts. I wanted to make sure they had every opportunity to have experiences that I had when I was a kid. Uh, from that point, you know, I, you know, and so my story jumps around a little bit then. I was a free agent in 1999 and the Atlanta Falcons actually um, was one of the teams I was interested in and just so happened they were interested in me. So I came to Atlanta in 99 and, um, you know, had the opportunity to play on the team uh, that season. The 2000 season rolls around. I developed for some particular crazy reason, developed blood clots in my lungs. Mm. And something that happened in Japan, I think we had American Bowl. And then really, at that moment when I was on IR, I had to make some decisions. So I want to continue to play football or is it time for me to make that break? So having had the opportunity to meet Rudolph Berg, who was again, someone who was part of the city of Atlanta, but also a professor at Emory, um, I decided that it was time to make that break. And so I applied to graduate school at Emory uh, while I was on an injured reserve for the, for the Falcons. And I um, only applied to one grad school, got into Emory, and then just really kind of worked through um, rebuilding myself in, in a way that helped lay the foundation for my intellectual pursuits. So, you know, the summer leading to my first year in grad school, I just read. You know, I had, and, and, and Rudolph being um, Rudolph, he gave me um, 77 books to read. Number 77 significant because I wore number 77 in football. So I had 77 books to read leading up to that first year. And I read everything from Native Son and Invisible Man to Souls of Black Folk, uh, novels by Toni Morrison, Alice Walker, theoretical books, um, you know, Paul Gilroy, you name it, reading. Um, you know, just trying to establish the foundation needed for me to be in conversation with people like Du Bois, you know, yeah. who of course has long passed, but by understanding his concept of double consciousness, I could actually then use that in my conversation about black masculinity or even, you know, black athletes. Um, reading Invisible Man or even Native Son gives a kind of foundation from a literary standpoint, this idea of, you know, society shaping the responses that we will have to different kind of external pressures. You know, Native Son is a great example of that. And even in Invisible Man, Ellison's, you know, 
elegant approach to understanding how one develops an identity in a society that sees you in a particular way, uh, going back to double consciousness again. So it was helpful for me to understand, you know, how others saw the world and, and, and how others see the world, which kind of informs how I approach, you know, looking at art or photography in particular based on this particular, you know, um, today's exhibit. Uh, and, and working in the archives for me was one of the wonderful experiences I had as a grad student because, you know, I was being trained as a researcher under Rudolf Berg to pursue, you know, um, these questions related to black masculinity as a performance, the performativity of black masculinity, the body as a text, and I would go directly to the archives to start reading how others have determined um, what these performances are and why they're important. And it's in the archives where I discovered, you know, really that there were stories that were not being told. I mean, that, I mean, literally, a manuscript that never been published, mm -hmm. um, a biography of someone who's in the archives that we will never know. We know their work, but we really don't know them. But how they become the people we admire, how they become the people we want to know more about, it's just as important as their productivity and the work that we see mm. that represents their work, right? Their their careers. So it's in the archives where I find that we can we can really hone in on these stories of resilience, of success, of people resisting these ideas that are imposed upon their bodies. It's in the archives where we actually can share stories um, related to family into the past and the present and the future. Uh, and so again. I love black people. I love our history. I'm doing everything I can in my power to make sure that we are represented correctly, that we have a voice in places where generally we don't have a presence. Two questions, um, one rooted in the present and one rooted in, in your past. Yes. But in speaking about black culture, yeah. speaking about your past as an NFL player, right. speaking about Atlanta as a place of, of, of performative blackness yes. through hip hop, yes. as well as through sports. If you could forecast it, um, how will we interpret this current state of, mm -hmm. of, of where hip hop and sports um, have placed black bodies mm -hmm. in terms yeah. of, of the the value and the 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 gaze and the respect yeah. or all of that you know yeah. you know I think what I think is interesting you know cause I grew up in the 80s you know Rakim Eric B Public Enemy came you know came to my maturity with NWA um, and so if you go back to Sugar Hill Gang I mean it's it, hip hop developed as a form of protest it was telling stories it was the oral tradition put to music. And so, as, as a vehicle, it's been very effective. But I think now, in terms of how it's used, and sometimes abused as a form, um, is also reflective of the society we live in. Because again, in a society where black bodies are valued based on how, how well they labor, and how they perform for the benefit of others, um, which is, it's, it's not a new story. It's a it's story goes back to the founding of this country. Sure. Um, that young people, especially young black males, have, have learned how to use that for themselves to get ahead. 
And, and even as we, you know, I'll give you a good example, Uncle Drew, you know, the film that just came out with basketball players being made up to look old sure. is entertainment. But does that reach back to blackface minstrelsy? Mm. Black, you know, thinking about, you know, Burt Williams, you know, the, the last darkie as he's known because here's a black man in blackface to entertain white people. He's financially successful, but mentally and psychologically, he is his burden because he knows what he's doing. I don't think our young people know what they're doing. I think they're chasing the dollar. They're, they're getting paid very handsomely mm -hmm. to perform in these particular ways because they're not connected to the history. Now, in, in terms of, of even your role as an, an archivist, yes. given that a lot of, a lot of uh, technology has allowed us to crowdsource, yes. you know, to archive and document and shape a lot of what happens with current culture, um, in a variety of, of ways, how do you archive hip hop, or or, or how, do you, how do you how do you how do you pull hip hop into your archive? Well, the thing about hip hop is <clears throat> it starts somewhere. Mm -hmm. Usually, it starts with you know writing lyrics down on a, on a cocktail napkin, mm -hmm. right? So that would be the first thing is to collect the material parts of hip hop, okay. the material aspect of it. Um, someone's taking photographs. Someone has posters and they're putting posters up telling you that you know, there's concerts coming to town, they're flies, the ephemeral items, mm -hmm. you collect those materials. Um, but, and, and, and to your point, because we're in the digital age, you can also have those born digital files. And so videos, um, Instagram, you know, uh, all these other platforms, Snapchat, those are archival and they could be stored on a server. Okay. So if you want to call up something, if I have, you know, um, Goody Mob, or if I have uh, uh, thinking about Outcast, right? Over the last 20 years, I'm pretty sure someone has concert posters, mm. they have CD covers, they have the artwork for those covers, liner notes. All those particular pieces are part of an archive. You know, if you, you parse them apart into different categories, let's look at liner notes from, you know, hip hop albums from 1980 to 1985. What is the format? Right? And so those notes tell you a lot about how both the artist wants to be represented, but also who are the hip-hop writers. You know, what is Trisha Rose writing about hip-hop you know, in the 90s that's important to understanding the hip-hop you know, performances in the 80s? So we can make those, those connections if you have the material, the gotcha. material both analog and digital. Yeah. Right. Now, going back to your roots in the Bay Area right. in California, um, one of the things I'm always curious about is the the energy of of protest right yeah 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 and how it seems that bay area the 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 energy around protesting around rallying around around using voices and bodies and resistance seems to be different out there than in other places yeah. or maybe there's a, a a lineage a lineage of that that feels like it's still present today mm -hmm. um can you talk about maybe what is unique about that community right. or that geography footprint yeah. that has has uh, cultivated a community where where protest is not the norm right, but right. but very much uh, part of the fabric? You know, it's interesting. That's a, and I think it's another excellent question. It's like asking a it's like asking what's the difference between 
the uh, Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Black Panther Party, right? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, historically speaking, thinking about migrations from the South to the Midwest or the North, migrations from the South or Southwest to California to the West Coast, the kinds of people who settle in these different areas, mainly rooted in the South, um, move and their children are born in these different places so they have a different identity they have a okay. different way of thinking about the world um, their um, their experiences shape their future right and, and that's that's pretty obvious so if you root it in the south and southern traditions southern baptists and you have a particular kind of cadence or way in which you speak and you move in society knowing what the parameters are right the south is segregated you are marginalized you know, the, the the movement is finite, and so your arguments are very concise and they're strategic because you know what can befall you. That's a southern approach to it. I think in the Bay Area, where I grew up, you know, um, so my mother and my father attended high school with Lee Evans, who was a member of the 6-8 Olympic team that, you know, that uh, the students were coming from San Jose State. Tommy Smith, John Carlos. So they're all in the same kind of community. But this also this community is is is, um, is Asian, it's Latino, it's white. It's a mixture of these kids that are coming from different you know parts of the country to work. Uh, families are coming to work on the farms. You know, the, you know California agriculture was huge, but also the packing plants between um, baby food uh, company and uh, like Del Monte, where they had fruit and vegetables that were canned. So these families are coming, and they're coming from different places, and these kids are able to be freer in terms of their ideas and how they speak truth to power. They weren't necessarily put into that box that the South has, where you have surveillance, you know, where you have the Ku Klan, where you do have that reality of um, sites of memory where people have been lynched and murdered in the open. Where you've had the, you know, people have this, the family histories of uncles and brothers and you know, fathers being killed. So there's that regulatory factor that is embedded in the land, in the space. Whereas in California and places in the Northeast, or even thinking about Detroit, Chicago, Pittsburgh, um, the movement that these young people are allowed has flexed wide open. So they're able to speak in a way without being intimidated. They're able to create their uh, arguments and you know, this cohesion of, 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 of attitudes towards the, you know, the, the, the powers that be. So what you have in the Bay Area in terms of protests, it wasn't just black power, it was Chicano power, it was Indian power, it was where you had the gender, you know, you know women, women's um, movement. All these things took place in the Bay Area because it was ripe for young people to speak you know, collectively about the oppressions that they were experiencing, both individually in terms of group, but collectively. And so that energy was there across the board, especially in the Bay. And, and also, I think one of the things we have to be mindful of is um, in terms of age. You know, the civil rights movement was a long movement. It's called the long civil rights movement. It started, you know, during Reconstruction. And so you had different iterations of it over time. And it was, became more refined how we do it. We're nonviolent, you know, you know. We're trying to make them be morally aware of what their challenges are. The moral suasion argument that goes back to abolitionism. So that argument was persistent through the civil rights movement in the South. Whereas in the Bay Area or in the Northeast or in the Midwest, no, this is not about you being patient. It's about what, what is necessary, you know, by any means necessary, right? But even in terms of the Black Panther Party, the 10-point program was about 
feeding, clothing, and educating our children because they are the foundation for the future. We cannot wait for you to do that. This is not a civil rights, this is a human, right, human rights issue that we have to address. We don't need you to handle this. We'll do it ourselves. And that was a threat, right? So it's like how we have approached our own sense of liberation has been, it's very, and, and differed based on place, space, region, history, um, and leadership models. Pelham McDaniels, what are you working on now? What can we look forward to from you in the foreseeable future? What's kind of on your radar? So I have three books right okay. now, uh, two anthologies, and one is a book on the photo postcard of World War I soldiers taken in France during the First World War. And so that one is, is just about complete. I have an anthology I'm co-editing, um, a special edition from Callaloo called Sport is Art as Resistance. And this book really is uh, in response to um, the protests of NFL athletes, you know, Colin Kaepernick and a number of these student athletes across the country. Um, and so we're pulling together essays and art related to protests, especially through the arts. And the third one is a book on black theater. Uh, that I'm co-editing with Paul Carter Harrison and Michael Harris uh, related to a workshop we had a few years ago called Black Aesthetics and African Sacred Systems. Pella McDaniels, thank you for your time. No, I appreciate it. Thank you.